I was sent a devotional book recently written by a Chinese evangelist and missionary leader. I'd never heard of him before and didn't really have time to read the book, but read a lot of it this week. It just caught my attention. This leader is responsible for serving behind the scenes in a movement called Back to Jerusalem. This is a movement of Chinese believers by the thousands, and we don't hear much about it, but they are actually risking their lives to take the gospel to Muslim countries and Hindu countries where the gospel is forbidden. And uh, this particular leader has been imprisoned several times, often hunted with a reward on his head, many times beaten, even tortured for his insistence on preaching the gospel. In one part of his book, he talked about how on one occasion in a Chinese prison, both his legs were broken. He wrote in his devotion that at night he he would lie on his back and prop his legs up on the cell wall to try to relieve and ease the pain. He spoke openly and transparently of his struggle to surrender to the will of God at times there in the solitude of his suffering. He included in one section how the church in China teaches five things that every disciple must be prepared to do. I found these interesting. They must be prepared at any time to pray, regardless of circumstances, to be ready to speak the gospel, to be ready to suffer for the name of Christ, to be ready to die for Jesus Christ, and they must also be ready to escape if they can so they can continue preaching the gospel of Christ. Isn't that good? They apply that last directive from Matthew chapter 10 where the Lord told the disciples that if they're persecuted in one place, flee to the next. So if they get a chance, they're going to escape so they can keep preaching. So they've got to be ready to pray, speak, suffer, escape, or maybe even die. This Chinese leader entitled the 19th chapter in his devotional, Chocolate Soldiers. And that caught my eye. What further caught my attention was underneath the chapter title, he had a quote by another pioneer by the name of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a 19th century British missionary that I had heard of and have read about often who pioneered the, the gospel to China, India, and in his later years in Africa. And he was just kind of a, he was just a tough guy. I mean, C.T. Studd would take on anybody and anything. And in fact, to kind of give you an impression of what kind of man he was, he once wrote a two-line poem that simply went like this. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Okay, that kind of sums it up for C.T. Studd. Well, in chapter 19 of this devotional, the missionary from China quoted C.T. Studd delivering a similar challenge. I'd never read this before. He said, and I quote, A chocolate Christian dissolves in water and melts at the smell of fire. Living their lives in a glass dish or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frilled white paper to preserve his dear little constitution. God never was a chocolate manufacturer and never will be. (laughs) God is, he's saying, looking for and developing Christians who will not melt or dissolve in the face of trouble, peer pressure, opposition, tribulation, and even persecution. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, doesn't it, who challenged Timothy to endure hard times 
as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Paul further exhorted his son in the faith to train himself for the purpose of godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. God isn't into manufacturing hollow chocolate soldiers. And in light of our study on the office and calling of the elder, I have little personal doubt that there are fewer men qualified or even willing to serve as leaders in the church at large today because of greater demands and greater pressure that will be placed upon their lives. The requirements of discipline and study, the toil of and the penalty of leading in front or perhaps even standing alone. And to use the analogy of these missionary pioneers, chocolate soldiers cannot wear the mantle of a shepherd. There's just too much danger lying in wait. There's too much fire to deal with. You might be tempted to run or even melt down under the pressure of all that heat. And so the Apostle Paul gave Titus a task that has been going on since the first century. Titus, I want you to go and find men who will be elders, bishops, pastors. Find these men who will not run, who will not melt in the face of fire. Titus would naturally have asked, you know, what kind of resume can you give me? What kind of direction can you point me in to find qualified shepherds who will be able to guard and feed and lead and encourage and challenge and discipline and love and care for the flock of God over whom they've been appointed. So Paul gives Titus this list that we've been studying, a list you could simply outline as qualifications of elders. And he began the list, if you were with us, you may remember, uh, by telling us what an elder must have as a relationship to his wife and his children. And then Paul delivered to, to Titus five vices his candidates could not be known to pattern themselves after. He's getting to the pattern of their lives. And there in verse 7 of Titus chapter 1, he says, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And then he gives these five vices, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not greedy or fond of sordid gain. Now Paul moves on to deliver seven virtues that these men should pursue and again, strive for in a pattern or as a pattern of living. They're not to do that. They're not to be that kind of man, but they are to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, and holding fast the faithful word. Now, in our last study together, we studied the first four of those seven Virtues, and today we'll address these final three. And let me remind you as we get ready to dive in here as a church body, all of these qualities, all of these characteristics are to be the passionate pursuit of every believer. For you will find that they weave their way in and through New Testament characteristics of those who follow the Holy Spirit. These are fruits of the Spirit, many of them listed in Galatians chapter 5. So effectively what we're saying is that none of us, none of us are to be made out of chocolate. That's kind of hard to say because I love chocolate, by the way. Every time I say that I'm getting hungrier as the hours pass on. I love it, but we're not to be made out of it. We're all fighting a battle, aren't we? 
And to make matters more difficult, our struggle really isn't against flesh and blood, something we can see. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness and wickedness. Ephesians 6.12. Certainly the body needs men who will lead the charge and show the way and pursue a model they can then pattern for those they lead that will protect them and encourage them and serve the flock well as the flock deals with their own daily battles with the world and the flesh and the devil. Little wonder then that Paul asks Titus to pry into the private lives of these elder candidates. They've got to be confirmed as having private disciplines of godliness. In fact, the words at the, at the latter end of this list translated perhaps in your translation as they are in mine, devout and self-controlled refer as much to private exercises as public demonstrations. The word devout comes from the word hosias, which refers to holy piety. Holy piety. In private, he desires to commune with God. And that just sort of filters out in his life. The word is used by Paul in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8 where he encourages every man to pray, lifting up holy hands. It's often misunderstood to say when you pray, raise your hands. That's fine if you want to do that. But what he's actually saying here is that when you pray, God sees your hands and you can effectively lift them to him as, look, Lord, they are clean. They are holy, hosias. They are are pious hands. They're genuine. They're authentically following after you as Lord and Master. And so that's, that's the kind of pursuit in private, and his hands will be seen that way in public. Listen, dear flock, the, the, the idea that whatever a man does in private does not affect what he does in public is utter nonsense. It's utter nonsense. In fact, it's corrupt, devious nonsense. It gives those who would be leaders free passes. That is only self-destructing. According to the Apostle Paul, whatever a man does in private qualifies whatever he hopes to do in public. Why? Because whatever you do in private is whatever you are and whatever you are will leak out in public. And if a man cannot be trusted in private to care about the will and the character and the nature of God, he cannot be trusted to in public care about any of that either. In fact, one author wrote that when Paul used this word here for devout, He's referring to an elder overseer who is fully dedicated to the glory of God. In other words, he isn't just dedicated to the glory of God where people can see him. He's dedicated to the glory of God in his private life when the pressure is turned off. And if he isn't, He'll never live up to pursuing the glory of God out in public when the pressure dial is turned up. When the heat's turned on, he might melt. So he must be personally devoted to God, and that quality of devotion will be evident both privately and publicly. Paul goes on to add one more virtue in verse 8, the word translated self-controlled. 
self-controlled. Again, as much private as public. It's a compound word made up of the words in, I-N, and power. In power. In other words, it describes a person who is in control of, in power over, in this case, one's self. To be in control of one's own impulses. To be in power of one's own emotions. One's actions. Self-controlled. I don't know what it was like when you were a kid in elementary school. In fact, it was really sweet. A mother came and talked to me and she had a fifth grade daughter. And she said, yeah, I got the same, same thing going on here. But we had report cards that were split in half. One half were the grades and the other half was character. And, and I'd get that report card when I was in elementary school, and I hated it. I dreaded it because I knew I might get an A in spelling, and I often did. I won't tell you what I got in math, but let's just say it wasn't anywhere near in the same region as that. And, and I loved history and reading. But, but what really was, was the, the issue was the character qualities like courtesy and helpfulness and the dreaded self-control. I scored well on the other side, but that wouldn't matter to my parents. They didn't care a hell of beans about that side. Their priorities were all messed up. They went immediately to that side, and it was usually, Stevie, come in here. You got a bad mark in self-control. And under self-control were all these blank lines where the teacher could, could tattle and, and, and gossip and do all sorts of unbiblical things. <laughs> Well, you know, it's true. If you're raising children, you know, you, you got the same issue, right? Your child wants to run and jump and you got to teach him, no, be still for a moment. Sit still. He wants to eat now. And you got to tell him, no, wait. And you're teaching them control over how they feel. They're going to want to eat dessert. No, wait and eat vegetables first. <laughs> Which is tough, isn't it? I love one kid's response when his class was asked one day by the teacher, what have you learned recently? <laughs> and this little boy raised his hand and he said, well, I have learned recently that you cannot hide broccoli in a glass of milk. <laughs> he had evidently tried. It kept floating to the top. Poor kid. A mark of maturity is controlling or just having power over emotions. Choosing the right act the right response, even if it's hard, even if it doesn't taste good, you get a little older, even if it goes against the crowd, even if it's painful, even if it's unrewarding, even if it's time-consuming. You get the point. Titus, you want to know what kind of shepherd is not going to melt? Make sure he is controlling his inner desires and urges in private, by the way, because that's going to show up somehow, some way, in a lack of self-control in public. One author wrote perceptive words. He said, an elder who does not continually then monitor his own life, submitting his sin to the Lord's cleansing and keeping a clear conscience is not fit to lead God's people no matter how outwardly righteous his life may appear to be. If he acts right only when others are looking, he is doing just that, acting. 
And the Pharisees had it down, didn't they? They gave their money and they prayed and they fasted to be seen. The word is thinomai, to, to create a theater. We get our word from that. They were putting on a show. They were spiritual only because they were being watched. And they were good at it. But when the pressure was on, the spiritual leaders of Israel caved into the peer pressure and the greed and the jealousy and all those inner urges stoked by the enemy of their soul and their corruption ran free and they ultimately failed the test and melted down and led in the chant to crucify him. Self-control. Keep in mind this virtue of self-control is among the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and verse 23. It's for all of us. And by the way, let me just turn the coin over here a little bit and let you know that Paul isn't telling Titus to find men you know, who just have some unusual ability to stay stoic. Men with no emotion. Their expression never changes. They have some sort of amazing internal system where they can control their mouths and their hearts and their minds and their hands, and they just are, they're, they're, they're just, they're super powerful. No, he isn't looking for men that just comes easy to them. Self-control is actually the result of being under the Spirit's control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It, it, it is self-control along with every virtue here. It, it, is, it is that daily decision. It is that daily surrender to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And both the elder, shepherd, pastor, and everyone in the flock fights that daily battle to, to get back under and to stay under because we want to crawl out, go back under. We want to crawl out, go back under the Spirit's control. It's a daily decision. It's a moment-by-moment battle at times. It is, it is the challenge of our lives, and to come under his control means his spirit is dominating our spirit, and in that you discover the source and the power over and of self-control. So find men who are constantly talking to themselves, saying, you're out, you're out, go back under. Don't do that, say that thing, go back under. Find men that are internally compelled to do that because they want to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And then as a pattern, live it for the flock's sake, ultimately the glory of Christ. So these are the private expressions or exercises which become public patterns, devout and self-controlled. Now, now Paul moves to the last virtue, and, and it's the most developed, frankly, of all of them. He's going to move from private exercises to public exposition. In fact, you could say, rightly so, that Paul shifts from what an elder is to what an elder does. Notice verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. In other words, a true shepherd isn't going to let go of the faithful word. You could translate it, the word that is faithful, the word that is trustworthy. He's not going to let it go. He's going to revere it and read it and study it and memorize it and obey it and believe it and teach it. He's literally going to love the word, the words of God. 
It is faithful. It is trustworthy. And he never wants to go far from it. He wants to live in it. And so he's going to set the example then for the flock in relation to this book, in being constantly nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. To, to long for the pure milk of the word as a baby longs to be fed, 1 Peter 2, 2. In being commended to the word of God's grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified, Acts chapter 20 in Ephesians. So, so that's his love and his longing. A pastor preaches and teaches the word of God, An elder believes he is fully convinced that the Bible is alive and capable of bringing about true and genuine reformation of soul, heart, and character. And so he clings to it because without it, none of that can happen. He's committed to the truth that the Word alone reveals the true character of the true God. It reveals the will and purposes of God. It reveals the promises of God. It reveals the plan of redemption from God. It reveals the dangers of the enemies of God. It reveals the way to walk with God and commune with God and confess to God and love God. It is a living, dynamic book. It's God-breathed, translated Theonoustos, inspired. All Scripture is inspired. That is, it is the breath of God And then it is profitable because it is from God for genuine teaching and reproving and correcting and training so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So the pastor elder who recognizes that Scripture alone is inerrant, it is the breath of God, it is inspired, literally God breathed, he then recognizes that Scripture is the only sufficient authority for faith and practice Sola Scriptura is more than just a clever little Latin motto. We actually believe it, and we understand why Paul would tell Timothy to do what for 19 centuries true and genuine shepherds have been doing, to preach the Word, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, to carry out the preaching of the Word of God, Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, for the flock of God. Anything less than that is inadequate. Anything else is a shepherd leading a flock to parched, dried-out grass and ground rather than the green pastures of God's inspired Word. So a firm grip on the Word of God allows an elder to get his arms around the work of God. If the Word slips, the work slips. If an elder strays away from the Word of God, he will stray away from the true work of God. If he isn't all that interested in the Word of God, his work for God will in reality digress to be nothing more than an appendage of his own fascinations and his own ambitions and his own dreams and his own desires and ultimately his own reflection. The church in our generation is nothing barely more than that. It is joining more and more a host of others in this mass appeal in a quest for relevancy, which does nothing more than make their ministry superficial and self-focused, 
where the highest goal of meeting together for worship is the enjoyment of the spectator rather than the pleasure of God. When we sing a song, we ask, hey, do we like that one? We leave the service and say, hey, was that, was that really good for us? Do we like that? Was that enjoyable? Was it entertaining? The, the highest goal in that kind of church, the focus is on the fulfilled life of the listener rather than the transformed life of the listener by means of the Word of God into the image and character of Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. So apart from the clear commitment and exposition of Scripture, the church then is going to be driven along with the winds of the most recent fads and, uh, and trends. It's going to be driven by by entertainments and storytelling, which John Piper in his wonderful little book called The Supremacy of God in Preaching, which is required reading in our seminary, he he describes the average evangelical service in these words. He simply calls it the slapstick of evangelical worship. It's quite possible, and I'm coming to believe this more and more, it's quite possible that the evangelical church in our world at large is now set up to melt down at the first signs of genuine persecution. We're standing for the gospel, which I believe is just around the corner. I want you to notice that Paul said, The elder must cling to the trustworthy word, which is, note this, don't miss this phrase, in accordance with the teaching. In other words, it tracks back to and is in agreement with the apostolic doctrine. We're not coming up with anything original. If anybody says, hey, I got something brand new for you, it's after the period at the last chapter and last verse of Revelation. Just turn them off and and, uh, tie up your shoes and run. This teaching of the apostles was the core around which the New Testament church was formed and committed, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Any teaching that didn't correspond with the progressing revelation through the apostles, you're holding it in your lap. That apostolic truth, which then ended with the last apostle John and his last revelation, anything that disagrees with denigrates, detracts from this record of apostolic truth and preaching was considered by the church spurious and dangerous and even devilish, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. There is only one apostolic body of truth. It was delivered already through the apostolic community. There's only one Lord, it reveals to us. There's only one way it reveals to us. There's only one baptism. There's only one spirit, one hope, one faith, Ephesians 4, 4, and 5. Anything apart from this God-breathed resource is simply wrong. Anything that disagrees with what it says about what it says is wrong. Are you ready for that kind of stand? Are you ready for that kind of heat? There are not many gods. There's only one true and living God. There are not many faiths. I, I, I personally bristle when I hear that. There are not many faiths. There's only one faith. 
Everything else is speculation and eternally dangerous error. You ready for that kind of stand? Listen, if one group of people believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and another group of people believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5, none of us would say, isn't that nice? There are two answers. There are two viewpoints. What matters most is what 2 plus 2 means personally to them. Now, my algebra teacher never gave me that kind of latitude. It was either right or wrong. She didn't care what 2 plus 2 meant to me personally either. I don't even know if she cared about me personally. But she certainly didn't give any points for getting close. Are you, are you willing to communicate that kind of conviction out there in a world that is now saturated in pluralism? Best expressed in one man's biography I read recently where he said that the house of God, if there is one, has many doorways. G.E. Lessing, an 18th century German critic, played an instrumental role in Europe popularizing pluralism, which has now become the theology of our American culture. And all you have to do is talk to somebody out there and you'll hear them say, well, that God's good for you, but I've got a different one, or that belief is good for you, but that's not good for me. And can't we just agree that even though we believe contradictory truths, we could still both be right? That's, that is the theology of our thinking, so to speak. G.E. Lessing was um, a good storyteller. And he often used a story that he created to promote his viewpoint. See if this sounds anywhere familiar to what we're hearing today. He said this, A father had a magic ring which he was bound to give to one of his three sons when he died. Not wanting to be accused of favoritism, he made two imitation rings just like his. After his death, each son received a ring, and each son thought he was the one who owned the genuine ring. Well, the three troubled sons began to argue with who actually owned the genuine ring. And finally, these three agreed to go to Nathan the wise and explain what was going on. After hearing their tale, Nathan the wise responded that each of them was to think that his own ring was the true ring and not try to persuade anyone differently. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? I mean, can't we all coexist? It's certainly non-confrontational. I mean, can't we put the cross next to the star, next to the crescent moon? The trouble with that story is at the end of the day, there was only one magic ring, and the other two were fakes. I guess I'd hoped they'd never need the magic. There's only one gospel. All others are fraudulent. And to use this analogy, there's no magic in them. There's no hope of redemption or forgiveness. There's no supernatural cleansing power and, and hope for heaven and, and a rescue from, from sin and myself and hell. Titus, make sure that you find men who will cling to that kind of apostolic truth in that kind of manner. Make sure they hold fast. They won't let it go. Don't let go of the gospel. Make sure they're convinced. 
Because as soon as they take on the mantle of a shepherd, the heat is going to be turned up beyond their imagination. The pressure will be on to soften the edges of repentance and the claims of discipleship. The heat will be on to compromise the exclusive claims of Christ alone by faith in him alone. Anybody made out of chocolate isn't going to survive. And I got to tell you, every time I see a preacher interviewed on television, I cringe because so often you will hear, well, what about all those Muslims? What about this sin or that sin? And they will say, well, it's not up to me to say. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. In fact, the challenge is even greater than simply believing it. I want you to notice that Paul gives Titus two aspects of what they're to do with the Word of God. The first aspect is positive. Look at the middle part of verse 9. So that, all right, he's going to cling to the word that is trustworthy, that tracks all the way back and agrees to the apostolic truth. So that, first of all, he's going to be able to exhort in sound doctrine. That's the positive side of this. The word exhort carries the idea of urging the listener to respond, to receive to apply the truth. This is more than me transferring information from my notes to your notes. That's not the goal of, of exhortation. Exhortation is ultimately oriented to a verdict. To exhort means to seek by God's Spirit to influence the mind and the heart the conscience of the hearer. It is life or death. That's exhortation. In fact, the word Paul uses here, translated exhort, is from parkaleo, to call alongside. It's also a noun form used of the Holy Spirit, the parkletos. He is the one who encourages and he convicts and, and he reforms. A modern equivalent for our thinking would be the idea of having a good coach tough, when he needs to be tough, and, and uh, comforting when he needs to be comf- comforting. A good coach knows what his players need, even, even though they might disagree. I don't know about you, but I never had a, had a soccer coach in high school ever say out on the practice field, now guys, the real reason you're out here today is for you to feel good about yourselves, so why don't you give the player next to you a big hug? And then after we hugged, he said, now I want you to feel good in those new cleats that you've got on. You didn't work, work them in like you were supposed to over the summer. So uh, if you don't want to do any laps, that's really fine with me. In fact, I'm going to give the whole regimen of discipline and training up to you, and you do whatever you feel, you know, you feel is right for you. Because at the end of the day, I want you to have happy thoughts about soccer. <laughs> uh, not hardly. My, my soccer coach used to, used to work for Hitler. I'm fairly convinced of it. <laughs> I mean, he would work us to the bone, and we would be praying for the rapture. Uh, but, but he also knew how to encourage us and motivate us and stretch us. He, he talked strategy and teamwork. He, he would tell us about the teams we were going to be up against. And after we were dead tired and sprawled out on the side of the soccer field, he'd tell us why it mattered. He's a good coach. And it paid off. True biblical exposition is exhortation. It actually joins the truth of the Word of God with the activity of the Spirit of God in bringing about through its truth transformation in the child of God 
so that this truth becomes a way of life. You would notice that Paul describes this doctrine as sound. It is sound doctrine. The Greek word hugaino gives us our word hygiene. It literally means healthy doctrine. It's good for you. It'll save your soul and protect your path and your feet, your mind, your heart. In old days, doctors referred to someone as sound of wind and limb, good lungs, healthy body. So sound doctrine, that's the idea, produces a healthy Christian, and doctrinally healthy Christians live healthy lives, make up a healthy church. They're thinking correctly. They're living correctly. That's the biblical definition of health. And behind it all is a commitment to sound biblical exposition. So Titus, now I I want you to go and find men who will love the Word like this. They're going to love it enough to study it and deliver it and stand by it so that the body will be sound and healthy as doctrine is sound and healthy. That's the positive aspect. There's a negative aspect I want you to see. This is the second aspect. Notice further at the end of verse 9. And, he's not finished there. A lot of pastors say, hey, that's great. I'm just going to go encourage everybody. I'm going to be a good coach. Oh, and, and to refute those who contradict. His ministry is both constructive and confrontive. John Calvin, the reformer, wrote that a pastor needs two voices one voice for gathering the sheep and another voice for driving away the wolves and the thieves. Now, Paul is going to spend several verses detailing this confrontive ministry, and I'll save most of our thoughts for them, but let me at least say for today's study that the word translated refute is a bit surprising. I've already addressed it somewhat, but, but I'll tell you, the word refute means to literally show people their sins, define that sin, and summon them to repentance. Paul knew that Titus needed men who would be willing to both deliver the truth and expose the error. We need it more today than ever, and the heat is turning up, isn't it? To call something sinful or in error or in need of saving is to be considered unloving and judgmental and even divisive. Who, what right do you have to judge me to call that a sin? To tell me I need to be saved? To say I'm a I'm a sinner? You're just being judgmental. Listen, calling cyanide poison is not being judgmental. It's being protective. Telling your child that that neighbor's dog will bite him is not being unloving. Putting a fence up so the dog can't get to your child and your child can't get to the dog is not being divisive. It's being protective. Telling someone they need to be saved that they are following a a false prophet or a false god or a false messiah is not being unloving. In fact, it is being loving enough to try and warn them of hell and save them for heaven, right? 
And our culture is becoming more and more like that airplane that flies into a bank of clouds and you can't see out and you can't see down. You might think you're okay. You might think you're flying trim. You might think you're ascending instead of descending. You don't know that you're headed straight for the side of a, of a mountain. A tragic ending is just ahead. Titus, find me some men who will go back to the instrument panel who will effectively stand up and accept both the positive and the negative aspects of Bible exposition. Men who will tell the truth to save the lives under their care. That's what he's saying. I can remember personally the first rumblings I had in my gut, spirit, sounds more spiritual, of anger and sadness, kind of all mixed together. And what God was doing in my own heart to, to eventually accept the role of an elder, as I listened to a false teacher deliver a message to his congregation. It happened when I was a freshman in college. I was going to be a history teacher. It's one of the few grades I got. I considered that God's leading. So I went away to study, and the little college I went to didn't have a campus, and you had to walk to different buildings, and I would often walk past this little stone chapel off on the side of Main Street. Beautiful gardens, beautiful, beautiful chapel. Sat about 100 people and I was curious what they believed. I wanted to know what, what that guy in there was preaching. And, and so I decided to skip church where I was supposed to be. And I've already confessed that, so we're okay, I think. But uh, I decided to go to that church for their morning service. And I didn't plan it, but it just so happened to be Easter Sunday morning. I slipped into a pew, beautiful mahogany hand-carved pew, slate floor, beautiful little chapel, people around me, well-dressed, waiting for the service to begin, looking at their programs. The organ was playing somewhere in the background. We stood and sung a hymn. I didn't recognize it. It didn't seem all that bad, although it didn't say anything about Jesus or God, his character, anything about that. Sounded good. And then a doctor or so-and-so, I can't remember his name or I'd tell you, stood to speak. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. He rambled on and on, literally giving reasons why Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. And I, I can still feel what I felt 35 years ago sitting there looking around at these people and that false teacher up there who of all Sundays on Easter was telling people why Jesus was dead. And I could feel it right here. And I still have it. And so does every elder, shepherd, leader. Why? Because there is an aspect of believing the truth where you want to warn people. You're angry over error. You pity the poor sheep who have nothing to eat. You want to do everything you can. And it has been my great duty and delight to wear the mantle of shepherd, to both battle the wolves as well as exhort and encourage the flock along this saving, healthy, true path that ultimately will lead to heaven. Chuck Swindoll, the chancellor of Dallas Seminary, has pastored churches for more than 50 years now, still pastoring. 
Marcia and I had a chance to, to, to hear him talk about what he had learned in 50 years of ministry at the National Religious Broadcasters, but he wrote recently some words that I have in one of his newest publications, Insights on the Book of Titus, that I'm enjoying. He included private words from his own journal, which I believe will encourage everyone who wears the mantle of a shepherd, but it will also reassure the flock. He wrote this, If God is pulling his people toward their spiritual destiny, and he is, I suppose that makes the spiritual leader his rope. Though the tension gets almost unbearable and sometime I fear my own rope is coming unraveled, no one should pity me. While one end drags the church through each difficulty, the other end feels the firm, reassuring grip of an ever-faithful God. And for reasons not even I can explain, there's no place I'd rather be. Maybe that's why this is not a job. This is a calling. That's the heart of a true shepherd. According to Paul's own letter to Titus, Jesus Christ will not be pleased with someone else. The church, you, the flock, the priceless possession of God deserve nothing less than that. This is a calling for men either vocationally or voluntarily to, to wear the mantle of a shepherd, to add to their own pressures and job constraints they already feel, for men to view this as a life, to be diligent in the Word of God, men who will be driven above all things by the pleasure of God, men who are dedicated to the people of God. Titus, I want you to go and find me some men like that who will not melt. Go find men who will answer this call. Father, we thank you for this fellowship of believers and for so many men who wear the mantle, who serve as deacons, spiritual leaders, those who teach, those who have come to believe this is a calling and have answered that call and have taken on the penalty of it all and the joy of it all and the benefit of it all to be that rope to face the heat. I thank you because that says a lot about your view of this particular church, Lord, and your goodness to us all. We need your protection. We need your power. We want your pleasure. We don't want to operate apart from the, the Spirit of God and the sound doctrine. And may that be our ongoing testimony and help every believer here, Lord, I pray today as they prepare now to go and face the heat. Help them to stand. In Jesus' name, amen.